If you've ever watched a, a court television uh, proceeding or, or you've seen a court case, uh, you may have heard the phrase as it goes along, someone will, will stand up and uh, they'll say, may it please the court, uh, or I always thought it was, if it pleased the court, and, and either way, the, the inference is the same. And, and if you look at your title, I believe it says, if it pleased the court. Doing a little bit of research this weekend, we did discover that it is, in fact, may it please the court, not if it pleased the court. And it, it's actually a very old, old statement. It's not official legalese. It's not mandatory within the court. But it is one of those things that, that when someone stands to speak in the court, to address the court, meaning the judge, the jury, and those present, uh, particularly in an instance where they are trying to, to rebut or argue against evidence that is very uh, convicting and damning to the case of one side or the other, they will stand and they will say, may it please the court, and then they will present their counter-argument. The use of the phrase actually can be dated back to the 1600s, 1601, in fact, and can be found in, in works of, of art from Shakespeare and other playwrights of the time, and it's believed it was used in the courtrooms at the time. It, it is viewed as a respectful but not necessary means in addressing the courtroom, particularly the judge, in hopes of getting a favorable hearing. And it indicates that the person doing the defending or, or doing the presenting knows what they're talking about. That they're not just some fool off the street trying to, to represent their own case in that point in time. Inherent in the address, though, may it please the court, if it please the court, it is a sense of hope. That what I am about to say will in fact please the court and assuage my guilt. That what I am about to say to the court will in fact convince them of my innocence or my deservedness of a second chance. May it please the court. I've been thinking about that all this week and actually for several weeks as I've been considering th this text. As we, we come to the Lord and, and as we think about the reality of our sin and our guilt and our righteousness. And we like to think in American culture and in the world in general about the idea of, of our good deeds outweighing somehow our bad deeds. That there is somehow hope that if I can just get my life right and do enough right things by the end of my life, that, that my ledger will be not cleared, but that it will be heavy enough good that it will then outweigh the bad. And I have really, really, really bad news for you this morning. Your good deeds will never outweigh your bad deeds, and nothing that you say or do in and of your own strength will please the court. May it please the court? No, the court is not pleased. And we see that here in Romans chapter 3. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. And we're going to start for the sake of the cause this morning in verse 9. Romans 3, starting in verse 9 and going to verse 26, it says this. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands and there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. 
They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So we've got this, this whole passage here where, where Paul is using courtroom nomenclature. He, is, he uses the word testify. He, he uses the word that talks about how we are declared this, that, or the other. He talks about us being under the law or under being the sin and all mouths being silenced, everyone being held accountable, that none of us cuts it in and of our own works. Now, I do want to back up. I didn't read the beginning of chapter 1, but I want us to address it because it kind of ties into what we said last week and is an important stepping stone into what we're talking about this week. At the beginning, Paul talks about what advantage there is to being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision. And and he ultimately comes to the point that that the only advantage or the, the overwhelming advantage, the overarching advantage is that they, the people of God, the Jews, were given the word of God. And you've got to wonder if that wasn't a plus minus. There is a positive side to it because they do have the words of God. They were privileged to receive it and to share it. But as we discussed last week, the more revelation we have from God, the more accountability we bear. So here we have this incredibly accountable people that have seen God's word, that that end up holding the oracles of God, as Paul talks about this week, as almost an idol. One of the problems with with we as people of God and and with the people of God in the Old Testament and New Testament was that the holding of the Bible, that the word of God itself became more important than the God that gave it to them. And their position, their privileged position, became what defined them. Not the holiness of God, not not the honor and the humility of being chosen, regardless of our own good deeds. What, What became most important is their own inherent goodness, because they must have done something good to deserve God's special favor. But Paul says, the advantage is sure, you have the words of God. But then he mentions something that I think that we need to talk about for our own selves. 
Because we noted at the end of the service last week that God's name, in verse 24 of chapter 2, God's name is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. That our lack of obedience to God creates or or serves as a a, a means for other people to disbelieve. And I want to address that because Paul addresses that. Paul says in verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. Now I want us to recognize, and this is a bonus point for you to write in your notes if you want to do it this morning, if you take notes. The bonus point is this. God is not at fault for our failures. God is not at fault for the failures of his people. God's representatives being doofuses and doing the wrong thing does not mean that God himself is acting in the wrong. We have to keep that in mind. The the judge is righteous and beyond reproach. The failures of the followers belong to them, not him. Now, it's true that we do, uh, what we do reflects on the Lord, but it, it shouldn't. Not negatively. We are sinful human beings. We are sinners gonna sin. We are all going to fall off the proverbial wagon sometimes. We're all going to mess up from the person in the front to the person in the very back of the balcony. We all of us are going to mistakes, make mistakes. We are all going to screw up. And, and, and what should be surprising to us is not when sinners sin, but when sinners do what's right. It, it, it shouldn't be surprising when, when, when sinful man does sinful things. What should be surprising for us is when our lives are so rearranged by the power and presence of God that that isn't the norm. And Paul talks about the foolishness of, of this argument that, that our failure somehow reflects so negatively on God that we would then cease to believe. If our faith falls apart, Because of the actions of a man or a woman's failure, it reveals that our faith was improperly placed in the first place. If I were to somehow fall off the wagon and do something horrendously terrible, God forbid that that were to happen. But were that to happen, and you ceased believing, and you turned away from God, and turned away from the church because of my misdeeds, your faith was never in Jesus, it was in me, and your faith was poorly placed. And I would like to submit to you that we have judged the judge of the universe based upon the actions of peons that have walked the planet, pawns in his plan. Because none of us are queens and kings and knights. As much as we like to say that we are, we are adopted into the family and and we still have our baggage that we carry with us. We need to keep our attention on the judge, understanding that God is holy and transcendent. He is perfect even when his people are not. Our failure is our own. And what our failures do is validate God's wrath and his righteous judgment. And to hold God culpable for humanity's failure is utterly ridiculous. I want you to try this next time because obviously we could point to the guilt of someone else as a reason that we shouldn't be judged, right? So, uh, God, you can't judge me because that person was imperfect too. Next time you get pulled over for speeding, I want you to explain to the cop that you've actually done him a favor. That, that by you speeding, you have shown that everyone else really wasn't that bad. And that what he should be doing is thanking you because he's revealed to you those that he needs to pull over and those that he didn't. So he should let you go, not with a citation, 
but with a meritorious recognition for how great you are as a junior detective. How good do you think that's going to go for you? Not only are you going to get a speeding ticket, you're going to get a breathalyzer and a full body cavity search. It's going to be a rough day for you. Right? It's, it's not going to work. Our continued failure reveals unfortunate truths about us, not about God. We need to stop looking at sinful humans when they fall off the wagon and suddenly think that God doesn't exist or God isn't just or God isn't right because humanity isn't right. You know yourself, right? Why do you expect any better from anyone else? And this is where Paul goes following this. He, he declares the righteousness of the judge and, and the judge's qualifications and, and his transcendence so that he is able to, to un, with an unbiased opinion, look upon us and objectively judge us as the righteous judge of the universe. And Paul, as he continues on into the passage we've read for this morning, reveals this, that all of humanity is exposed and without excuse. All of humanity is exposed and without excuse. None of us has a leg to stand on in the courtroom of the creator. None of us has a leg to stand on. Verse 9, Paul says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? And Paul says, not at all. The defense can rest because we have no defense. And Paul issues two questions for us to consider this morning both imply a negative response. Paul asks, what, what shall we conclude then? This is akin to, to Paul saying to his readers, what do you have to say for yourself? What do you have to say for yourself? Like when you catch your kid de dead to rights doing something that you have directly told them they're not to do, they, they know they're wrong, there is no no, there's no chance of an innocent verdict here. There, there's no, I accidentally fell into the cookie jar and it somehow fell into my mouth. I put my hand in the cookie jar, I took it, I took it out, the cookie's in my mouth. It, it's, that's the only thing worse than getting caught with your hand in the cookie jar is having the cookie in your mouth. There, there's, there's no way of backing out of that. Like, the intentionality is clearly seen. And Paul says, just like we went to our kid in that instant, what do you have to say for yourself? Well, what can you say when you have the cookie in your mouth? There is nothing to be said. That's Paul's point. We know in our own lives that once that question comes out, what do you have to say for yourself? There is nothing to be said. That's why they give us, when, when, they, when they arrest someone, they give you your Miranda rights, right? And the first part of that is, one of the first parts is anything that you say can and will be used against you in the court of law. Guilt has already been established. You, you, don't, you don't have to do anything to, to help that, that along. It, it's clear that you've been caught in a precarious situation. Don't open your mouth and confirm that you did the thing you're guilty of. Guilt has been established. And in the courtroom of the creator, guilt is not in question. We can argue about degrees of cultability. But guilt is there. What, what can we conclude then? Well, what else is there to conclude? That we're guilty. Are we any better? Sure, we're guilty, but are we, are we in fact, as people of God, with the word of God, are we in fact any better than the word around us? Does that give us an excuse? Does that somehow put us to where we're better off than those around us? It's a question of standing. 
do those who have God's word excel to a point where their standing in and of themselves is any better than those who do not? Put another way, I have the law of God, right? I have the words of God. Do, do my efforts in living this out put me in any better of a position than someone that does not have this? Well, maybe in the sense that I am living life closer to what God has asked, but that doesn't, does that make me any less guilty of sin and failure and fault? Paul says, not at all. Not at all. I'm still a sinner. I just sin a little less, hopefully. Are we any better? Paul says, not even a little. Not even a little. One scholar says this, standing taller is of little value when we're all underwater. We're all simply different shades of blue. The fact is that none of us is any better than the rest. We are all sinners in need of salvation. We're all, as Paul points out in the text, we are all natural-born citizens of a different, different kingdom, the kingdom of this world. Uh, we need to understand that all of us in the context of the kingdom of God are immigrants, None of us are natural-born citizens of God's kingdom. We're all adopted into the family, right? Which means that we weren't blood-born, we are blood-bought. The good isn't inherent within us. And because we were born into a different world, a different kingdom, we live under a different authority that has different laws. And the reality of those laws and our lack of understanding of them implicitly puts us on the wrong side of God. And you see this if you travel internationally. A lot of times you see the difficulty of being born in a different kingdom, in a different nation, and trying to understand the reality of laws and the rationality behind them. Did you know... That in the nation of Singapore, chewing gum is illegal. In the nation of Singapore, chewing gum is illegal. If you are caught chewing gum, you could be fined $500 to $1,000 for the first offense. With the amount increasing with every subsequent offense. If you are caught selling chewing gum, you could be fined up to $100,000 U.S. dollars for the first offense and be imprisoned for two years for selling chewing gum. As Americans, it, it would be so easy. How many of you are chewing gum right now? Yeah. Gene, I want you, I know you're on the list, but I want you to look around and take notes. You will be receiving our bill later this week. <laughs> As Americans, it would be easy for us to violate that rule. Because it's so outside of the realm of how it's natural for us to think. It's not how we view the world. Those laws have not been ingrained in us from birth. But for a citizen of Singapore, that's just how things work. There's a rhyme and a reason to it. As outsiders, the law seems strange and harsh. But in a densely populated country with very little land mass, it actually makes a lot of sense. And ultimately, here's where it ultimately falls. Our opinions don't matter. Our opinions as to whether or not it is a reasonable rule or law or not is completely inconsequential. They are a sovereign nation. They can do what they want 
on their ground. Their country, they can rule it however they want. And when we visit, we either follow their laws or we pay the price. And you and I, according to this text, we violate the law of God because we live under a different set of standards. We are born into a different kingdom with a different rule of law. Paul says that in verse 9. He says, we've already made the charge, this is the charge against us, that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Now this, this under sin, under the power of sin that is, is used here, is talking, it's a, it's a legal term. He's talking about the, the law that we're under, and he's making a comparison because later he's going to talk about living under the law, under the sovereignty of God, his rule and reign, and aligning ourselves with that. And Paul says, by nature, Jew and Gentile, meaning those that are religious and those that are not, we are naturally born under the power of sin. It is what holds sway over us. It is the rule of law in our hearts that guides and governs our actions. It is the master that we all serve. We are all slaves to the sin nature inside of us. As a result, it's not just difficult for us to follow God's righteous law. It is impossible in our own power. In Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, David says this, Surely I was sinful at birth. And surely from the time my mother conceived me, we, we, are, we are utterly sinful. Whether, whether we have big, we like thinking in theological terms or not, the Bible teaches us over and over and over again that humanity is born in sin. That we are broken from the start. That little baby, as cute as it may be, is a sinner at birth. That's the reality. The Bible tells us that our best efforts, our very dead level best efforts of the best person that's ever lived at following and living according to the righteousness of God, the, Isaiah says, it says, filthy rags. It's trash. We cannot do it on our own. And Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6 that dual citizenship isn't an option. That we can't live in the kingdom of the world and follow and live under the power of sin, doing our own thing, doing what comes natural to us, and live under the power of God, doing what he's commanded us to do. We will love one and hate the other. The two are so diametrically opposed that we cannot live in both kingdoms. We live under sin. And Paul makes the case over and over and over again in chapter 9 of Romans that everyone is implicated. Everyone is indicted. Everyone's called to give account. And Paul goes on in, in chapter 3 to, to paint a, an unflattering picture of the place that humanity finds itself in. Paul presents the evidence against all of us by creating what is called a caruse. Everybody say that word with me. Caruse. Now, I found this, is inter this interesting. I, I was this week old when I learned this. I'm pretty excited to share it with you. That word, literally translated, means a string of pearls. A string of pearls. And it was a method of teaching used by first century rabbis whereby they would string together related passages of Scripture to teach a lesson. 
So Paul is essentially uh, creating his own subset of Scripture that is making the point that he's trying to make here, that is, that is defending the case that he's laying out. By stringing together pearls of wisdom, pearls of God's word that are connected throughout Scripture, putting them tightly together so that you see the value and the connectedness of them in the text. And in, these, in, these, in this carouse, in this string of pearls, Paul recognizes the issue of our character, the subsequent poor conduct, and the root cause. Character, conduct, and cause. Verses 10 through 12, Paul points out our, our character, our, our human condition. Now, we, we really wouldn't argue with this. We, we might try to argue back and forth, but we use, there's a very popular phrase that we use that shows that we ultimately know that we're all sinners. To err is human. To err is human. It, it is the, we, we, we often will say that, that, Humanity, we make mistakes. That's what, that's, what, that's what it means to be human, is to make mistakes. We implicitly know that the core reality, the defining feature of what it means to be human is to screw up. We've known that throughout history. We know that this is a core feature of, of who we are and how we function. And Paul, as he establishes that in verse 10, notes that there is no one who is righteous. Not even one. He creates a no one is righteous sandwich where he starts with it. No one is righteous, not even one. No one does good, not even one. And then he puts a whole bunch of stuff in the middle of it here in verses 10 to 12. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one truly seeks God. And all have turned away and become worthless. No one is righteous. No one maintains right standing before God in their own strength and actions. No one. The age-old saying is 100% true. For every human not immaculately conceived, every human not named Jesus of Nazareth is a sinner. And the statement is true. No one is perfect. Rather than being a justification for failure, though, Paul using it, is using it as evidence calling for the condemnation of all humanity. It's not that, I, sure, I'm a sinner and no one's perfect, which means that you're, you're just as bad as me, so I'm, I'm not that bad. No, no, that's not how it works. It means that we are all bad. That we're all sinners in need of saving. We all, at some point, opt to do our own thing for our own reasons without regard for God's standards or holiness. So then Paul goes on for the character, from the character issue, the, con, uh, the condition within us, and goes on to conduct in verses 13 to 17. And Paul draws attention to two different aspects of our conduct, how we act, what we say, and what we do. Look at, look at verse 13 and following. He says, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. They say deadly things and they are liars, he says. Their mouths are full. The poison of vipers is on their lips. They, that what we say does harm and does damage to others. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. So that, 
That first part, part Paul's talking about, about the things that we say, the lies that come from our mouths, the way that we manipulate what we say to get others to move and, and function the way that, that we want them to, the ways that we say things that hurt others and tear others down and do damage to others. Paul goes on. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. Now Paul talks about the things that we actually do to one another. And he doesn't, he doesn't build his way up. He goes all the way to murder. Remember, Jesus himself said, you don't have to actually kill someone to kill someone. If you hate them in your heart, it's the same as if you've murdered them. Jesus doesn't give us a lot of medium, like in between, that we can deal with or layers. If you think and have these negative, hateful thoughts towards others, it is, it is a sin. Now, here's what's interesting about these two different categories of sinfulness that Paul brings out. They are all focused outward. Every last one of them deals with how we interact and treat one another. Paul says there's more enough, and, and, and we know this to be true. There is more than enough evidence just in how I treat those around me to condemn me as a sinner. I'm, I'm talking about me right now. You, you deal with you, but I know that if I look in the mirror in comparison and use God's word, as James says, as a mirror to reveal to me how close I'm getting to looking like Jesus, the fact is that I have the messiest nat rat's nest of, of a hairdo going on, and my face is all out of place, and there's no fixing it on my own. <clears throat> I need professional help in more ways than one. We're all sinners. Our conduct the way that we treat one another specifically is way out of whack with what God has commanded us. What's the cause? Well, Paul lays it out in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Proverbs 9.10 tells us, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear in this context is not terror. I've talked about this before, but I'll talk about it again. Fear is not always our enemy. Sometimes fear is a good thing. A healthy bit of fear about the rattlesnake and the nope rope, as Robin likes to call them, in your backyard, that's, that's to your benefit. Like understanding that that thing with the rattling tail and the big teeth and the stuff coming out of it, that you should probably stay away from that. That is a healthy fear. That... that now, it's, it's, a, it's a healthy respect for the reality of the power that is inherent in that little thing. How much more so when we deal with God should we have a healthy awe and respect for who God is, the transcendent, almighty creator of the universe? We should have a healthy respect for him. There should be a little bit of nervousness and trepidation in our hearts as we approach his throne. It is an attentive, reverent awe. And when we fail to see God as he is, we fail to submit to his rule and live our lives as we should. When you boil it all down, the root of our issues in life, in general, come from a lack of respect for God Almighty. That we just respect us more than we respect him. We see us as more important than him. We prioritize ourselves or others above him. And Paul says, no one, not even one person, is innocent. But how do we know that? 
How do we know that not one person is innocent? Paul takes us back to the law, and Paul talks about God's word. And he shows us that what God's standards really do for us is that God's standards reveal our shortcomings. God's standards reveal our shortcomings. Having God's list of this is how you do it, this is how you should live, and this is how you should function in relationship with me and in relationship with one another, what that has ultimately done for us throughout history is shown our incapability of doing it on our own. God's word provides the path to righteousness. But it also proves our inability and our exceeding abundance of opportunities and willingness to take them to go do our own thing. We've all, as the Bible says, gone our own way here in chapter 3. Verse 19 says, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Not just Jews, but everybody. We are all under his sovereign rule and authority. We may have been born with a different national identity, if you will, into a different kingdom, but we were born into his world, and he will rule it as he sees fit. We all fall under his jurisdiction, and all of us are accountable to Almighty God. Paul's view of the law has expanded through his carouse to include all the prophets and writings of the Old Testament. It's not just portions of the law that were explicitly for God's people, but all of God's word for all of God's people. God's righteous declarations render all of our rebuttals ineffective and his, his, his judgments final. Paul's words bring to mind the end of a trial when the verdict is read. Paul says that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable. He paints that picture of the end of the case. Wherever, where, the, where the accused is to rise. And there's silence in the court as the jury renders their verdict and the judge issues sentence. There's no more rebuttal. There's no more arguments. God's decision has been made. And from best to worst, we all miss the mark. I mean, think about Hebrews 11. Right? We, we talked about that a, a few months ago, went through all of it, and we talked about the fact that these heroes of the faith aren't rightly called heroes of the faith because, in fact, they were pretty unfaithful. They weren't necessarily great people. They were everyday and ordinary people that God called and, and that they, they obeyed God and did amazing things through the power and presence of God. Moses, uh, Abraham was a cowardly liar. Moses was a murderer. David was not only a murderer, but also an adulterer. Paul himself, who is writing these words, led in the persecution of the early church and, and presided over the, the murder of at least one man. I even go back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had one thing. They had to do one thing. One thing. You can eat any tree on the planet. You can eat any fruit, anything that you see that looks good. Go ahead and eat it. It's like being in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. You can eat anything you see here. Eat it. It's all good. Go eat it. It's for you. Except for this one thing. Just don't touch this. This one little tree right here. Don't touch this tree. Any other tree. Any other tree you can have. Just don't touch this one. 
You've got to be kidding me. You had one job. One job. Just don't eat that one. But I've got to feel a little bad from Adam and Eve, don't you? What happens immediately after someone says, hey, don't touch this thing? Like, does not, is there not a burning that arises inside of you that says, I have got to touch that thing? That one thing that I, I know, I, I, may need, I maybe didn't even notice that it was there. I didn't care. I maybe didn't, maybe even I don't like it. Maybe it's the same fruit as other fruits on the garden, and they know they don't like it. But now that God said I shouldn't have it, like, I'm like, maybe I'm missing something here. Maybe I just didn't try it right the first time. We do that with sin, right? It's like the kid that, 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 that we tell the kid, hey, don't put your finger in the electric socket. And maybe they've even done it before and they know that hurts. And as soon as we tell them, they, don't, they didn't even know it was there until we told them. And now all the kid can think about is, I got to put my finger in that electric socket. One rule. Couldn't even follow the one rule. Here's the truth. The more that God rec- reveals himself to us, the more that we are forced to recognize how laughably short we fall of meeting his expectations and standards. Now, we could pray and I could send you home and this would be the most depressing sermon ever. Because Paul starts off pretty strong and comes at his heart, but he turns the corner here going into verse 21. And we see that justice is served and right standing restored through the sacrifice of Jesus. Our only avenue for a favorable verdict when we stand before the judgment seat of God is faith in Christ. To throw ourselves on the mercy of the court through the actions of the Almighty himself. And we see Paul turn the corner in verse 21. Paul lays out all of this unfortunate reality. He, he points out our guilt over and over and over again. He pulls no punches. And then he comes into verse 21 and he says, but now. But now. Paul's about to take it in a totally new direction. It marks a shift from the bad news that preceded, preceded it to something new that God is doing. Paul points out that in verse 21, that, that the Old Testament doesn't just point to our sinfulness, but it gives expert testimony that points to God sending an advocate to fix the problem for us. It, it points to God's plan to provide a favorable judgment apart from our own actions. Paul says, but apart from the law, apart from the law, apart from our own actions, The righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. Verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Jesus is the key again. God provides the mean for us to be declared innocent. Declared innocent and walk through, free through Jesus. Jesus is the only reason that any of us get to walk out of the courtroom of God without cuffs. Through faith in his saving grace. We come to verse 323, and this is where most of us go in Romans chapter 3, where it's, and most of us could probably quote it, where it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
This points back to what we talked about earlier, right? To err is human. But we can't just stop with that part of the phrase. That is true. To err is human. But how does the phrase end? To err is human, but forgiveness is divine. Well, Paul brings those two things together. We, we should never quote verse 23 without to verse 24. We should make a commitment today that we will never quote verse 23 without verse 24. Why? Because Paul gives the bad news, and then he gives the really good news. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely through his grace, by his grace, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. you got to finish the sentence. Paul's gospel is there. The good news is there. Yeah, we are hopeless sinners on our own. But Jesus brought hope through his shed blood. We can be made right. We're not stuck in our sin. To err is in fact human, but forgiveness is divine. And God has made it available to us early and often in an abundance through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 25 tells us that that God presented Christ Jesus as an atonement, as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. That Jesus took our punishment in order to provide for our pardon. Our record can be expunged by the shed blood of the sinless Son of God. Now I want to take a moment to have a, a, brief, a brief lesson of theological terms, if you will, because they're going to be important for today and important for, for the, the, the passages coming in the future. There are four terms I want us to be aware of, and they are incredibly beautiful and important for us as we understand our salvation. First one is atonement. Atonement is the act of making amends for or paying for a wrong in order to restore harmony between persons who have been at odds. Paul, in the NIV, it it translates the word there is that that Christ is a sacrifice of atonement, that, that he was the one that came to make amends by, by making right what was done wrong between us and God. I actually don't prefer that word. In the ESV, it uses the word propitiation. I like that word for two reasons. It tastes good on the tongue. Just say that with me for a second. Propitiation. Like, don't you just feel smarter having just said that? Propitiation. Well, what does propitiation mean? Propitiation is to avert the wrath of God by covering the wrongs done through a substitutionary sacrifice. So that that includes atonement, that Jesus made it right, but he made it right by taking care of the wrath of God. The word actually harkens back to the covering of of the, the Ark of the Covenant, where the blood would be placed over the top of that Ark, and by covering the Ark with the blood of God, God's wrath was averted. See, Christ, Christ didn't just pay our way. Christ took, God, Christ took God's wrath upon himself. Only the sacrificial death of Jesus makes it possible for God to forgive our sins without compromising his character. Only the sacrificial death of Jesus makes it possible for God to forgive sinners without compromising his character. So atonement, propitiation, justification... Justification is a, a declaration of innocence of righteous, or righteousness. It's to be declared just, to be declared right. The final is redemption. It's paying a price that is owed to release someone from danger or bondage. 
it actually gives the picture of someone who had done wrong and was then taken into slavery, but then the price paid to release them from bondage. Christ is paid to get us out of bondage, to make us free. Well, free from what? Not just from the wrath of God, that's true, but we've already covered that. The redemption of God does not just make us free from our sin, but free to live in righteousness. The Bible teaches us that we are all condemned and born, we are born dead in sin in our trespasses. That it is only through Christ that we are then made free to do what is right through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Here's the truth of this passage with these wonderful terms. We can be acquitted of all charges against us because Christ paid the price that was owed through his sacrificial death in our place in order that our record might be completely expunged and our relationship made right with God. God has done all of the work to provide for our acquittal. Essentially, God has offered us a plea bargain. Our guilt is not in question. The punishment for our crimes is well established. The wages of sin, as we're going to see in a couple of weeks, is death. The case of the almighty, in the case of the almighty versus humanity, the case is both open